The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hi, Francine. So it's uh, back to school, right? It is, but everyone's worried about concrete falling on their heads in the UK. I know. I mean, my kids' schools are still open, thankfully, but I mean, it just feels a little bit more like broken Britain, right? Like crumbling schools, crumbling infrastructure. Yeah, and I have to say the Prime Minister is coming under real fire of funding and why they hadn't seen this before and whether they just spent enough money in trying to renovate these schools. So the government's come under fire, but of course the question of investment in infrastructure is one that's run for decades. Is it this government's fault um, or previous administrations? You know, who's really to blame? Yeah, David, or is it just governments in general and the way they work? I'm Francine Lacroix. And I'm David Merritt. Welcome to In The City, Bloomberg's podcast, connecting you to the conversations right in the heart of the City of London. So this week, we try and tackle that question about whether government needs to be reimagined with economist Mariana Mazzucato. She's a professor in the economics of innovation and public value at University College London. Now, she's been called one of the leading economists of our times, and she's a bit of a novelty uh, for a lot of chief executives when they encounter her. Her book, The Entrepreneurial State, was published 10 years ago. It's been re-released with a new preface, and it's been credited with provoking a debate about the role of government in innovation. She not only slams chief executives and government, she also slams the city of London. That's right. We invited her right into Bloomberg HQ in the city, and it seems that the city of London is really part of the problem. Mariana, thank you so much for joining us. So this is a 10th 10th anniversary edition of your book, The Entrepreneurial State, Debunking Public Versus Private Sector Myths. Have we debunked them in the last 10 years or have they actually gotten worse? So it depends where. Uh, The whole point of the book was to go beyond the ideology of it's either the state and we have to nationalize everything or it's the private sector and we just need the free market. Um, In fact, the book debunks even the concept of the free market. We've never had a free market. The market itself is an outcome of how we govern public uh, sector actors, private sector actors, but especially how they work together. And in many parts of the world, they work together quite badly. We're in the UK right now. I think we have a parasitic public-private partnership. What I'm interested in is symbiotic, mutualistic public-private partnerships. Those are big words. I mean, what you're saying is what, that the government is dysfunctional? Where? In the UK. I think, well, you know what? I think the narrative is dysfunctional. There's lots of parts of the UK government that are not dysfunctional. I've worked over the last 20 years with the the UK government, whether it was in the Department of Business and Industrial Strategy, uh, the Treasury over its Green Book. How do we actually have a book, the Green Book, that actually evaluates? You know, how do you value public investment? It's something I'm very interested in. It's more the ideology. And, and what's kind of depressing right now, I find, is that even the Labour Party is reacting to that ideology by, you know, trying to show that it's serious and it's not going to spend too much money, where that shouldn't be the question. The lessons from the entrepreneurial state were that 
it's not that it's how much money. It's not about helicopter money, lots of it or little of it. It's do we have capable structures on the ground? Do we have a strong innovation system? Do we have a decentralized innovation system where, in the case of the United States of America, Silicon Valley itself was an outcome of having public organizations like DARPA, which invented the internet, basically, um, the National Science Foundation, which invested in the Google algorithm, but also on the demand side, really bold outcomes-oriented procurement. In other words, if you want to have a particular type of growth, you can actually use that lever, procurement, which is government purchases, not just government investments, to actually drive and create a funnel to scale up, for example, the ability of small companies to grow. It's about scaling up. Can startups scale up? Well, they can in countries that have bold outcomes-oriented procurement. So what I did in the entrepreneurial state is I unpacked all those points. You know, it's not about public or private, but it is about how they work together. And my recent book, The Big Con, looks at how this massive outsourcing from state capacity to, for example, consulting companies, that's the con of The Big Con, then that's not only problematic for our democracies because it's unaccountable, we didn't vote for McKinsey, but it's also bad for the ability to govern really complex challenges like climate change, a health pandemics, a digital divide, where ideally you have a strong, well-resourced civil service working with a strong, well-governed business sector and working together in ways where the contracts between them, whether it's intellectual property rights or bailout conditions and so on, is about actually steering growth to become more inclusive and sustainable. I think it's worth repeating the entire title for our listeners. Uh, the big con, how the consulting industry weakens our businesses, infantilizes our governments, and warps our economies. That's an incredibly strong title. Yeah. And to your earlier point about an, an ability for an economy to scale up its businesses, it sounds like with this book, you're saying that Britain is completely failing in this. And you're pointing the finger very um, purposely at the consulting industry. Is that is that fair? Yes. I mean, the, the new book is um, a book that kind of condemns governments globally uh, for having not invested within public administration and outsourcing that, not only to consulting companies, but in the UK to other types of private institutions like Serco, G4S, which by the way, keep doing a really bad job. Just remember what G4S did with the London Olympics where they couldn't even handle security. So the government had to bring in the military, <laughs> right? So when those same private companies uh, aren't investing within their own structures, we also have a problem. But um, the reason the subtitle has the word infantilization is because a very interesting quote came out after COVID when a Tory lord, his name is Theodore Agnew, looked at the numbers of just how much the UK government was spending uh, both during Brexit and during COVID on consulting. So for example, one million a day being given to Deloitte to handle test and trace, which I handled very badly. And he said, my God, if we keep doing this outsourcing, we will ultimately infantilize Whitehall, infantilize government. And the same thing was said um, in my other book, Mission Economy, sorry, I feel like this is just, hey, I wrote all these books. Uh, anyway, in Mission Economy. Which is why we have you which on, Which is to why I'm on here, exactly. Uh, but um, Ernest Brackett, who was the head of procurement for NASA during the Apollo program, started to witness already back then in the 60s how much NASA was actually starting to outsource its capacity, which fast forward has happened. And he said, if we continue this, we will end up getting captured by brochuremanship because they didn't have you know, sexy McKinsey PowerPoints at the time. They had shiny brochures. And he said, we need to work with the private sector, but we won't even know which private companies to work with if we ourselves become stupid. So we will get captured. But, Mariana, if you take a step back, okay, so we're in the UK, there's a huge crisis with schools. 
because uh, of cement, a lot of them are, are, you know, having to shut down because they're deemed unsafe. This is the government's job. I mean, this is not about them outsourcing. This is the government's job and they didn't do it properly. Absolutely. And so there's two problems there. One is the lack of investment. So if you don't invest in public infrastructure, transport, education, health, it ends up sinking your economy later because the cost of inaction is greater than the cost of action. That quote, by the way, comes from Nick Stern when he talked about climate change. Well, it's just as true about our social fabric, right? It costs less to um, educate a child than to imprison them, right? So invest now and make our social fabric strong. But the other part of that problem with the schools was the regulations. If we continue to weaken these regulations in the name of a stronger economy, you know, we don't want too much regulation because that's going to be bad for business. It's exactly the opposite because then this starts to happen and then ends up costing you more to fix the mess. Look at Grenfell. Absolute tragedy uh, came about because of the lack of regulation on building requirements and look at both the human cost, and that's the but, most important thing, but, but also the economic cost. is also government. So what are you telling us? Like, what's the right? I know you, you yeah. focus a lot on public, part, you know, private partnerships, but no, no, who's no, gov- doing this right? Well, okay. So who's doing it right? I'll get to that in a second. But your, your bigger question, which is what does it mean for public regulation and public sector investment is, first of all, you need to invest, but you also need to regulate. In other words, what are you investing in? You can't just say build more houses if then those houses are with really bad cladding, right? So that idea that you're both investing and that's good for growth, but the direction of that growth, which has to be inclusive and sustainable, means that materials matter, for example, um, in, in, in the case of building, you know, that should just be at the center of the discussion. Because if you look at so many of the problems, including the sewage that is being dumped into our seas and our rivers in the United Kingdom, that as well is due to not only lax regulation, but lax corporate governance structures. When you have companies like Thames Water that just ends up just giving so much back to the shareholders, both in dividend payouts, share buybacks, and so on and so forth, instead of reinvesting profits back into good infrastructure, not only is that bad business, but that's bad government that should have actually created strong conditionality that in order even to get these contracts, whether it's for trains or water, you have to be producing you know, services and goods that are good for people and planet. And so you know, who's doing this well? No one country is perfect for sure. But what I've tried to do is to inform particular practices, most recently working with the Biden administration, where you have over $4 trillion being spent uh, on whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, the coronavirus uh, relief funds. And, and what I said to Gina Raimondo, who is the Secretary of Commerce there, is this is a great opportunity to embed within those public investment programs conditions that show that you are interested in a mutualistic and not a parasitic public-private partnership. So in the CHIPS Act, I helped to inform three particular conditions, which was limiting share buybacks, uh, better working conditions, <laughs> worker pay, because as we know, workers have not benefited in the last 10 years. Even when productivity is rising, they are not getting their fair share. And third, green procurement, green supply chains. So green is not only important for the energy sector, it's also important for any sector like semiconductors, if they're getting close to, uh, what is it, close to $400 billion from the government, then what does that mean for how they produce, for how they distribute, for how they have inventory, right? So how can we embed the sustainable transition into all sectors? Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work 
passion and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think a Labour administration would adopt some of these policies more enthusiastically? And of course, in the UK, you know, the government's hands are a bit tied by the fiscal situation. You know, we saw what happened last year when the government tried to kind of reset the clock in terms of the amount of money it invested. It caused the pound and the gold market to crash. Do you, are you optimistic if we are heading towards a Labour administration next year that things might change? Well, first of all, the reason the pound uh, crashed was not because it, the conservative government said it would invest too much. It was because they had a really silly tax policy <laughs> that would have increased uh, the deficit because, you know, G minus T, government investment minus tax revenues. If the tax revenues weren't increasing, the you know market said this is foolish, which was a great lesson. But it's it's the wrong lesson if all we look at is a number. What we need to care about is where is that deficit coming from? Is a short-term deficit arising because we're investing and all sorts of infrastructure, but also capable institutions, including public institutions that um, will be critical for long-term growth and hence drive the denominator of debt to GDP. That means that a short-term deficit might actually uh, lower the long-term debt to GDP, which is what we should care about, your ability to actually raise revenue ultimately that helps to keep that ratio down. But labor, yes, they have been inspired by, I think, my recent book, Mission Economy. They use that language about missions. There's uh, five different missions that they've set out. What I've been talking to them about is to be careful because <laughs> words are not enough. Uh, what matters are the details. So, for example, one of their missions has to do with growth, which doesn't really make sense. Growth is the outcome you want if these missions work well. So if a mission works well, it means that there's a challenge, whether it's around health or um, transport, you know, sustainable mobility. Um, globally, it's about, you know, making sure our oceans are not full of plastic and so on. But the critical thing is to transform those into what I call moonshots, which then require both public and private sector institutions, as well as third sector, sometimes philanthropies matter, uh, to work together to solve that problem. And that requires investment, innovation, training, and the solutions to the problems along the way, just like the moon landing required a thousand different homework problems to be solved, will get you growth if this is done well. So with the moon landing, we ended up with camera phones, foil blankets, baby formula. Even if you know the lunar module had exploded just before getting to the moon, it would have still been good for growth because public and private worked well. NASA was confident. So having missions around health, around uh, new materials, 
around better public infrastructure, around climate, of course, but turning those challenges into concrete missions like carbon neutral cities, get every city in the UK to be carbon neutral, that's going to then require all the levers of government to be outcomes oriented. So where do we get lost at the moment? You have a whole chapter also dedicated to Apple. This is what you're basically saying is we need a government that's on it, that negotiates well, that still fosters private companies, right? But get something back. So the case of Apple, uh, the reason I spent so much time on Apple is that the US, um, I joke in the book, you know, talks like Jefferson, but acts like Hamilton. Now, before the musical Hamilton, no one knew what I was talking about, but Hamilton was um, a U.S. politician who actually believed in industrial strategy, whereas Jefferson talked more of the free market talk. So the U.S. has talked free market, but has actually acted with strong industrial strategy. Apple as a company benefited massively from that. Google has benefited massively from that. But we've ended up socializing the risks and privatizing the reward. In the case of Apple, everything that makes our iPhones smart and not stupid, we call them smartphones, not idiot phones, are things like the internet, GPS, touchscreen, Siri. All of those four technologies were invested in in different ways by the public sector. So that's a good part of the story. That means a great company like Apple that is invested in design and If you've read the uh, biography on Steve Jobs, you realize just how much care he put into designing a beautiful phone, which we all ended up wanting. That would have been a dumb, beautiful phone without those technologies. So the question is, why did we end up producing all this technology, which a company like Apple could benefit from without actually thinking through how do we make sure that the growth that then results from the whole IT revolution, you know, information communication technology revolution is actually not only smart, but is also inclusive. What, what, what do I mean by inclusive? If wealth is created collectively, which it is, this is all an example of collective wealth creation, how do we make sure the distribution of that wealth is as collective as the creation of that wealth? But Maria, on, on paper, all of this makes you know common sense. Mm. And I'm a huge admirer of, of people that devote their careers to public office. Mm. But how big government do you need to be able to do that? So what I have repeated almost ad nauseum, my father always says, do you ever change your story? I'm like, no, got to continue with the story is we have to invest within the capacity and capability of government to govern in the way I'm talking about. It's not enough to say big or we need more money. Sometimes we need more money. So in the case of the schools that you mentioned before, there was too little money spent on those school buildings, right? So we just went after the bottom line, low cost, same thing with Grenfell, and then a disaster happens. But even when we spend the money, the way that we then govern that money, think of the European Recovery Fund right now, which is you know over $2 trillion being handed out to different uh, member states in Europe. If those countries then, like Italy, where I'm from, get the money from the European Commission, but have no capacity because they've stopped investing within the civil service, then that money is not going to land. It's not going to actually create the growth we want. So you need both sides of the story. You need the right amount of money because it's not going to happen on the back of a napkin, but you need the capacity and capability. And that capability, you also need it in the private sector. So an overly financialized private sector is also misgoverning itself. And I think this is the crisis of modern day capitalism. You have a public sector, which at best thinks about fixing market failures. So you're always too little, too late um, and hasn't been investing within the civil service. And it's not just about austerity. It's just about capacity and a private sector which has just been focusing on short-term profits, often at the expense of those companies actually helping to produce long-term growth. Uh, workers within those companies are often not benefiting, but also the profits themselves are literally not being reinvested back into production. 
um, but are being financialized through share buybacks that are too much. You know, a bit of share buybacks is not a problem. It's the excess share buybacks. So do you see, therefore, Mariana, the City of London as part of the problem here? Obviously, in Britain, financial services are an outsized share of the economy compared to many other European countries, at least. Does the City of London really need to change in order to um, help build the sort of economy that you're talking about? Uh, Absolutely. So, you know, even pre-COVID, the UK economy, uh, the growth that we had was not driven by investment. It was driven by consumption. And that consumption was fueled by private debt. So even when we have recession, say, and we want to get back, you don't just make it easier to buy homes and, you know, to fuel the mortgage market. If people then don't have incomes that can be used to pay back those mortgages, then you end up with what we have today in the UK, which is very high private debt. Uh, compared to disposable income. And so the problem in the UK is the financial sector. It's not financing the real economy. It's not financing a green transition. It's financing itself. It's paying a lot of tax, right? It's well, also- no, but 80% of finance in the UK goes back to finance, insurance, and real estate. So no, they avoid tax in all sorts of ways. Of course they pay some, I mean, of course they pay tax. And you're right to point out to that because what you want is a diversified economy. That would have finance, that would have strong energy companies, strong IT companies, strong pharmaceutical companies, which all pay tax. And how they work together, uh, of course, then matters because so many of the challenges we have around health, for example, is not just about pharma, it's about nutrition, what we eat. And I come back to the sustainable development goals because this year's uh, UN General Assembly is going to be preceded by this SDG summit. The UK, like every other country, has signed up to those 17 goals, but we're not taking them seriously. So what does it mean for how we finance those goals? You know, even if we just talk about the billions, we should be talking about the trillions that need to be invested to make sure that those 17 goals uh, get tackled. But the problem right now is that they're very broad. They're challenges. And then there's lots of projects, targets underneath them. What we're missing are those missions and moonshots that actually make sure that whether it's gender parity, life below water, climate change, and so on, actually are treated as urgently and seriously as the moon landing was. Mariana, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. It helps people find the show. This episode was hosted by me, Francine Lacroix. And me, David Merritt. It was produced by Summer Sadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. And special thanks to Mariana Matsukato. And don't forget, if you want to explore all of the fantastic journalism from Bloomberg and all of the rest of our podcasts, do subscribe to Bloomberg.com. Hi there, it's Francine Lacqua, host of In the City. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.